the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we explore the art of improving existing software with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations work past the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, Ken Fogel, who is currently a college instructor at Dawson College, a member of the Java Community Process Executive Community, and a Java champion. Ken joins us from sunny or snowy, icy Montreal, Canada. Ken Fogel, we're so glad to have you join us on Maintainable. Welcome. Thank you very much for having me. I'm looking forward to our conversation. So as you reflect on, you know, I think around four decades in our, of experience in the industry, what do you believe are a few common characteristics of, dare I say, maintainable software? Well, my, my feeling, and I come from it having worked in education for most of my time, I spent 10 years freelancing and then got into education, is that there's too much focus on getting things to work and not enough focus thinking ahead, thinking what's going to happen in one year, five years, 10 years. I find this disturbing, and it becomes a big part of what I teach my students, that they don't just think about what has to, what the outcome is right now, but what's going to be the outcome in a year or two years. Do you think that's a symptom of pressure from organizations just trying to get something out the door? or a perception that we're just trying to solve this problem and then taking those, do you think that's like a lack of, they're not thinking about it or they're not taking some other steps as part of the process to consider what is say done, like what their definition of done means for a particular piece of code that they're working on? You know, it's interesting when, when our students go out on their internships and I'll say to them, you know, what, what are the company policies? What are the approaches? What are the standards? What are the best practices that the company you're working for is asking of you? And the most common response I get is, what? Huh? You mean I'm supposed to have the company manual or the company playbook or the company anything? That there's, a, again, this, this attitude that we, you know, we've, we have a budget, we have to get something done in a certain amount of time. And... Uh, the moment you say it works, then, okay, you're done. But but wait a minute. Getting it to work is just the proof of concept. Molding it into something that can be, as you describe it, maintained, well, that's step two. And I'm concerned that there are many, not all, but there are many companies that don't really care about step two. There's a, there's a, po- a good possibility of that being true. And that's where it gets around when I was thinking on the, the concept of a, like what is an organization's, the team's understanding, a shared definition of what done is in the sense that is it done, that means that we're able to merge it and push it out and real users are able to interact with it. And that seems to solve the immediate need because there's always this growing backlog of other things to work on. So it's like, well, I got to get to the next thing and then trying to figure out what that balance there. You know, you said you, you talked to students about this. How do you help them understand that sort of concept around if they have never necessarily had the experience of working on something that was around for a really long time and keep iterating on, they don't see the pain points or, or maybe no, they don't, they may, may or may not yet. I'm making assumptions as well about what you may be able to accomplish in, in like getting your CS degree, having not got a CS degree myself, but I don't, I also have hired many junior developers and interns over the years to work with. There's talk about testing, but they don't always necessarily haven't seen the impact of when there's a lack of tests necessarily. And like, well, what is that? What does that unfortunate scenario look like? So how do you communicate that to students? 
Well, uh, first of all, a little background on the type of institution I work at. So we're not a university. The term we use in, in, in Quebec is CEGEP, which most people just call a college. So we're a three-year program that focuses on the practical aspects of software development. That our goal is at the end of three years, our students will take their first job and they, you know, they have no trouble finding that first job in Montreal. And they're ready to be productive on day one. They understand how to manage software. Uh, you know, uh, we may focus on a handful of languages, but they're easy to move on. It's very much a practical approach. So in asking me, how do I maintain this maintainability? I always like to tell the story. I had the students in the final year of the program. I lead them through the two project courses. So in the fall, they do a desktop project. And right now, they're busy building a, an e-commerce system. They work individually in the fall. They work in teams of four or five in the winter building these systems. But in the fall, because I've never met these students, they've been two years in the program, so I give them a simple problem to solve. I want them to write a classic dice game we sometimes call craps. Specifically, I'm interested in the version of craps called pass line, only because there's different outcomes depending on what you roll initially. And so I give these to the students and I say, okay, you've got 24 hours to produce the, the program, don't worry about you know, user interface. Console is fine, right? I'm not worried about GUIs yet, but I want to see how you approach a problem, how you organize it. And remember, you're trying to impress me. I'm the teacher you're trying to impress. So everybody submits their work. Everyone's submission works. You can all play the game. You can all make money, lose money. As I joke with them, it proves why you shouldn't gamble. And if, what did we have this year? This year I had 52 students and I gave 49 of them a zero. They do know that this isn't going to contribute to their final mark, but let me tell you, when I meet them after they all get their grades of zero, they're not happy campers, but that's okay. Because the reason they've got a zero are things like the student who wrote the whole program in Maine, no other methods. Uh, the students who made everything static so they didn't have to deal with that pesky new. Uh, the students who used a single class to do everything, hold the data, hold the actions. So I'm trying to right off the bat point out that making it work isn't good enough. And it's not good enough for me. As we go forward, as they work on their project, we have a very uh, precise rubric, right? They have to demonstrate uh, things like a separation of concerns, single responsibility. I have to take a look at how they are, they're managing data. Uh, and again, if I just another quick story. I tell my students, you're going to get a job. You're going to work maintaining somebody else's code. And then one day you're, the boss is going to say, oh, we have a new project. You're going to be lead. You're all excited. And you finish the project and you get another job. And the cycle begins. So what are you leaving behind for the person who's going to take your place when you move on? And recently I was talking to someone who found themselves in that situation. They were moving to a new job and discovered that the person who was hiring them was the person who took over from them in their previous position. And it was really good. He left good code behind because he got the new job. So that's, that's the, the approach here. I ask my students, 
It's not just about, you know, the algorithm. It's how you implement it. Let's throw everything, kitchen sink, uh, just, you know, if something doesn't work, more and more code, copy and paste, right? I'm not allowed to hit students, but boy, if I could, that would be one of the areas I would, you know, I keep threatening them I'm going to get a Nerf bat, but apparently that's still illegal. <laughs> <Yeah. so. laughs> that's interesting. Um, you, you give them that kind of time time box to work on a kind of problem. And it is, like you know, as you say, it's like a proof of concept and through that exercise highlighting it, like there's, there's more to this process than just getting it done and delivering it. Right. And do you find yourself like with that, with that process, like, I don't know if you've, if you've experimented at all, but I'm curious, like when, you know, people go join a, a new organization, whether, you know, it's their first job or their fifth, 10th job in, in the industry. And, you know, they, as you're saying, not a lot of companies, not all companies have documented processes and, approaches like this is the style guide that we use for working on code. And so, and what I've noticed over the years is that people will join in organizations. And so they kind of, there may not, may or may not be a certain level of documentation or doc, you know, around that kind of speaks to this, but they will kind of mimic the code that's already in the system quite a bit. Like, well, there are a lot of functions in this one class or, you know, methods in this one class. And so we'll just keep adding more here because that seems to be what everybody else has been doing. And then so you end up with these classes to do everything, right? But it's like in those, how do you, are you, are you, do you feel like you've been able to help students understand that they can break patterns when it makes sense if they find that there's actually a, a good reason to, and like, don't just follow the flow, but uh, maybe question the, your assumptions as well about like, don't just mimic parrot what the previous, or your coworkers are doing necessarily? Well, if anything, I encourage my students if they find themselves in a position where uh, there's no, you know, what I would call general guidance, there's no, you know, rule book or guidebook or best practices book, is start making one, right? As you're working on code, take a look at it. Don't be afraid to say to a supervisor or a lead, you know, a class with 175 methods may not be the way to go. It's true. Do you, in this, in, in this environment, do you introduce students to the concept of technical debt? Not with, with these students. No, we, that's not a topic that comes up in, in our environment. So I so, was so curious how that starts to become a topic within teams because, you know, everybody, do you have a strong opinion about technical debt and like what it means to you at this point in time or has it evolved at all over the years? Uh, it's it's one of those those phrases that we're all supposed to immediately light up and know what it means, but I don't <laughs> think anybody really does. You know, uh, you know, I could say to me, technical debt means uh, you you find yourself using a particular methodology and you refuse under any circumstances to give it up, even when it proves to have you know worn out its welcome and it's time to move on. All right, so I, you're, you're the first teacher I've had on on the show, and I'm regretting not having spoken to more. I mean, I have met plenty of coaches and stuff, or people that kind of been in and out of it a little bit. But someone with your your type of uh, tenure in the, in the let, let me be a little careful when we say teacher. And again, I want to come back to what we do. So um, I have a, an interesting history. I got into this also without a degree. Then I went back to to university to to get that degree, which I'll be honest, I never finished. Uh, but that's when I saw what was happening in universities, and it scared the hell out of me, right? That their only interest was, if I ran the program, did I get the result that was required? And that there was so little interest in how you got to that result. 
And so now we come to our college, also called a technical school, where practical, to me, how you got the answer, and hence my getting zero for submitting a successful program, is as important as, you know, uh, you know how you, you know, how you code, how you organize. And that's something that we stress in our program. It's not enough to solve it. It's, it's the approach. Some companies, you know, like the fact that our students will question them. Some companies don't. My favorite is the story of a company that forbid comments in source code. They felt that if you had to use comments to describe what you were doing, then you weren't writing your code well enough that all code should be absolutely, you know, comprehensible, right? And, and that scared the heck out of me. And these students report back that they spend endless hours just trying to figure out what the last team was doing before they can move on. I recently, and, and I should do this more, but recently, about a year ago, I contributed to uh, some samples, some sample code to an open source project. Um, the the leads there sent it back to me. They were upset that I had put comments in a Maven Palm file, and they were upset that I put comments in an HTML file, and they would not accept my submission until I removed all the comments because it just wasn't done. That troubles me. I've never been involved with that project since then because I, I just don't understand what that means. You can't describe what you're doing. You can't, you know, follow standards. It's interesting. Yeah. And I, I, I'm curious about that particular thing where I come from an environment where I work, I primarily work with Ruby as a programming language and Ruby on Rails. And there's a certain ethos in there is that because of the language is so English-like that you can be very expressive in your, in the way you write your code to help it hopefully Things mean something when you when you name something like whatever you know it's like variable naming like there's no shortage of like number of letters we can type on our computer you know and we can make that so trying to make sure that our variable names are very very clear what they are and like what we're doing and things and so there's a tends to be this interesting overlap of like are you documenting how something works or why you did it a certain way are you capturing the business logic in comments or are you capturing business logic and the reason, the rationale for how something's done and say automate a test or something that speak to a way to self-document the code, which is, I think, something that uh, I hear a lot of people talk about. And to some degree, I've definitely been guilty of talking about it. And I don't know if I have a strong opinion one way or another, um, especially as I talk to so many different people on this podcast that there's wide ranges of opinions about where to document things in the code in another supporting wiki type thing in the, the tickets of things you're working on in your git commit messages you know there's there's a lot of different places to store information about what's being done in the code and then so i think as long as teams are trying to figure out where it makes sense to capture the why and agree on that i think that's an interesting um challenge for teams to try to figure it out because one of the things that i think tends to end up happening for a lot of developers in teams is that documentation tends to be the thing that gets maintained even worse than the code and becomes outdated. And because they're nervous, like someone else wrote this, it doesn't feel as easy to change as it does for what I don't know. I think it's just like a weird gut feeling. Like someone spent a lot of time writing this documentation. I don't know how accurate it is now, but I don't feel super 
confident enough that I'm going to go modify it. And then people start to distrust the documentation. So I think that tends to result in people like, let's just not even worry about documentation anymore because nobody trusts it. That's not necessarily the right way to go either. So I don't know. It's an interesting little subtopic amongst all the things that relate to code and maintainable documentation is a, is a, is a big topic that I don't think gets enough attention for sure. Now I, I have a certain advantage in that, you know, I am the absolute ruler in my classrooms. And so when I tell the students uh, and they know this, they will fail anything. If it's not commented, I can get away with that. And, and they will then leave our program going, I, I got a comment, I got a comment and away we go. Um, the other thing, um, in our program, in, in the time I have with them, unit testing. You know, I tell them that, you know, when you submit work, the first thing I want to do is see that all your tests pass. I want to see what tests you've done. And if they pass, I'll look at your source code. But if you're going to submit something with failures in your unit tests, I'm not looking at your code. I don't want to waste my time. And again, it's, you know, getting into them this idea that I have to have tests, Right. I can't just run it and say, look, the answer that came out the other end is correct for this one value. How do you find out when you throw 100 values, 1,000 values? You know, you have to be, you have to test. And the hardest message that I have, and I know my students don't listen to me, write a method, test a method, right? And like, it's kind of, I'm not quite up to TDD yet, right? The idea of test first, method second. I say method first, test second, but I know the students are going, no, 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 I'll get to the testing later. And that's a hard message to get across, I think, to to modern developers. It's true. I think, you know, when you're touching on like TDD as being being an approach to work towards, and I think there's always that, when when you write tests, there tends to be this, uh, how often do people, developers that are, when they're working on a piece of code, are already testing what they're doing, you know, to some degree. So it's always trying to remind them like, well, can you repeat the test? How can, if you pass the code over to to another student in your classroom, how can they test this? Do they need to manually go through and test it through, you know, see what's showing up in their terminal or whatever, or on a web page or in their desktop application? It's like, are they seeing the desired outcome? Right. And so how do you, how can you reproduce that test? Right. As quickly as possible. And you, you can use code to do that. Right. And so, um, I think there's always it ends up being this thing where you test the the happy path more often when you already know it's work. The happy path being for anyone listening that might not know, like what you know to be true already. And so trying to think of those weird, how do you help them understand the uh, those edge case type scenarios where you said like you throw lots of things at it, different approaches to it. Do you are you very explicit like it shouldn't do this and it shouldn't ever work in this type of scenario, or do you kind of leave them to kind of come up with their own counting for edge cases? In in the project, you know, they get a, a document, a spec document. It's not just, you know, write me a program and I walk away. In our discussion of testing, that's where we look at, okay, you know, if I have a particular problem and I know, you know, these are the results I expect, test for some of them. But I stress, you've also got to test for what you don't expect. Like, you can swear to me that there's no way your program's going to return a negative number. I don't care. There better be a test to make sure that doesn't happen along that line. So don't be so confident in what you've written that you're blind to how it might fail. Because it will. Something will break. Exactly. And your job is to break it. Yeah. (laughs) Which is really hard because people don't like to break the things you did. You know, I remember playing with building blocks as a kid 
and you didn't want to break it. Not right away. Later on, then you just threw things at, the, at it to smash it. But <laughs> It's true. Are you in the, you mentioned there's like a three-year program. And then, so are you part of the last part of their three-year cycle? Well, that's just where, how I ended up. You know, when I started in the program um, a little over 30 years ago, uh, the interesting thing was at that time, the program at Dawson College was a COBOL school. All the students learned COBOL, assembler, and the, the, the faculty at the time saw the writing on the wall, that there, were, there was going to be work for small systems developers. You know, in the you know, 60s and 70s into the 80s, most of the work was working at major corporations doing mainframe. But we saw the change, and so I got hired because they were looking for somebody who only knew small systems. And that was my background. I was writing software for IBM PCs. Heck, I was writing software commercially for Apple IIs at one point. So that's how I, I joined the, the department. And it was, you know, an interesting transition as we slowly moved away. And then in 2000, the program dropped COBOL and we moved to Java as our primary language. And that's where we are today. But it's still all about getting the job done, right? And, and that's important to us because we want our students, as I said earlier, to be productive as soon as possible. But they have to understand, you know, how to organize the code, how to, you know, testing. There, there's so many different things and we want our students to be ready to go. That's awesome. Do you, um, so having been working with Java for like a long time, for a couple <laughs> decades plus and, yeah. um, you know, I'm actually reflecting on, I, I attempted to take a CS course on Java at one point to build some like applets or something in the late nineties. And I'm like, this is, this is something I don't know that I ever can ever wrap my head around. A couple of years later, I kind of fumbled my way into becoming a software developer. Anyhow, the thing I'm always so curious about with like students, you know, especially towards that, as they wrap up their curriculum, whether they're in a boot camp or they're going through a longer form type of trade school do you provide much advice and guidance on how they present themselves to the world in, in terms of portfolios or types of example work and projects that they're working that they have worked on and so they can show that off to potential prospective employers? So at our program at Dawson, like like many you know, CS programs, whether it's at you know technical or, or SAGEPs as we call them or universities, there is an internship. What we do, though, is a little different from some of our sister colleges in that we find the internship, right? So that we place the student. And that's because it's important that our students are working on a team with other developers. We know that just about any mom and pop store in Montreal would probably take one of our students to build them a website, but that's not what we're turning out. So... We want them able to go into a software development company. And to that end, their internship is uh, actually coming up. They start mid-April. We finish this semester early and then they go on internship. But up until that point, we're working with them, uh, doing mock interviews, going over how to write CVs, how to present the code they want. Uh, their project code is kept up on the college servers for at least a year. And the way in which we do the development, they could very easily host their e-commerce or their desktop projects on a single machine. So they can continue to use it as part of their portfolio as they go forward. And hopefully they can, as they you know, show the code they've written, 
show that it's not just about getting it to work, that there is a, you know, let's say a method to their madness in how they've organized their code and why, you know, they never use static because I don't like it. So they don't get to use it. (laughs) (laughs) We bring in interns from a couple of different uh, boot camps almost every quarter. We'll have a couple of people come into our team and then we've set up a good, I feel like a pretty good process where our goal was to, we wanted them to, you know, they were here for like six weeks or so, but we really want them to get to work on real world projects. So we're very much against, uh, like, there's no pet projects that we want. Like we're not going to have you work on like some internal project that Robbie dreamt up of. If we can get this done at some point, that'd be great. Or here's some cool little internal app that nobody, we may or may not use. So it doesn't matter if it gets finished or not. And we've, we about four years ago changed it to be like, no, they're going to work on client projects. I work in consulting. So our, we have lots of different clients. And so they'll get to work on real world tickets, bugs, improvements, small features that we're hoping that they can get out the door for our clients and they get to interact with clients. And then they also, so that way they're getting to be part of a team, but they're actually, so when they go on to look for their full-time position at some point, cause we've, we've also been very intentional about not having internships be a pipeline for hiring. We're like, in order for us to keep offering this internship program, we're not going to hire you, but we're going to do everything we can to help get you set up to give you that experience. But we have to keep a door open so we can bring in more interns in a, you know, a couple months so we can do this process again. Not saying we'll never hire an intern, just, but that, I try to like cut off that conversation too early. Cause what I find is that when they get those internships, sometimes they tend to put off the job hunt a little bit and hoping like back kind of crossing their fingers or however that translates to in, in your culture for wishful thinking that maybe they'll get the job here. Right. And so when we have multiple interns, you come at the same time, we're like, well, I can't always offer every single intern a job. And so, but it's that, that sort of approach has been, been, been effective for us as an organization. And then obviously in the pandemic and doing this remote the last year has definitely taught us a lot of things. So like how long are interns typically placing for a while and do they typically end up getting hired there or do they typically move on to looking for another position somewhere? So the way it's set up here, the internship is actually part of the semester, right? There's, you know, so uh, it's actually quite brief. Uh, Our internship is only seven weeks long, right? Because we're a para-government agency, you know, we just cannot have the students out there longer than that. What we say to our partners, though, is our internships are unpaid because technically they're still in class. They're just on your premises. Uh, We're starting to see some companies offering to pay, and we don't turn that down, but we've always been concerned that that would actually reduce the opportunities our students could have in a number of companies if we demand that they get paid. What we do have is a certain percentage of our students, usually about a third of them, uh, have decided to go on to university. They want those little letters after their name. So what happens is, as we look at where to place our students, If we know we have a student who is looking to work upon graduation, then we will likely place them in a company that we know will possibly hire them. Whereas we have other stashed companies, and our arrangement is quite clear, they have no intention of ever hiring any of our students, and not for anything bad, just just the the arrangement we have with them. And so we'll place the university-bound students in those positions. We'll be back with our interview with Ken in just a moment. Hello, it's me, Robbie. I wanted to take a quick moment to say thank you. Thank you. 
Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Please consider sharing a link amongst your peers on social media and or write a review on Apple Podcasts to help spread the word. Thank you. Also, is there someone in the industry that you think I should be speaking with on Maintainable? Shoot me an email to Robbie with a Y at maintainable.fm. And now, let's get back to our delightful interview with Ken Fogel. Do you provide much input on how they present, say, their GitHub repositories at all? No, that's not something that certainly I haven't covered it. We have, you know, two faculty members who almost their full-time position is the internship, finding places and prepping the students for it. But I'll be honest with you, the, the idea of uh, actually working with the students on how to present their code, I, I'm embarrassed to say this, that's never come up. Hmm. It's interesting. We, um, I was just thinking about it. I'm not trying to hijack the conversation necessarily, but it's, a, it's an interesting thing that I've found myself advising interns that come here is that they'll put a lot of time and energy thinking about their portfolio and their their resume. And then there's some aspect of I'm like, well, the thing that always most hiring company or hiring teams are probably going to look at first might be your cover letter or whatever. I don't know if that's similar to what you, you find in, in your area. But so it's like cover letter, we look at portfolio sometimes, but the thing that I rarely see from students that I, so if anyone listening, something I always end up recommending to our interns is like, if you have like a project you're working on and it's publicly visible and you're providing links to it, like in your job uh, application, very rarely do I get a good sense of how they're organizing the project and how they're thinking about what they're going to continue working on. It's, it's always like, so when you go look at like the, the commit messages on a project, when they, when you, when you're working in isolation, and you're not working on that project as a team necessarily, you know, I think a lot of developers will shortcut how much energy they put into writing a, a good commit message, like update, typo fix, whatever, you know, it's like one off little, like they, like they wrote something because Git or whatever um, source control tool says that they have to add some word or at least one, some character update fixes, whatever, you know, and so I'll pull up the Git command messages in front of them and just be like, here's your portfolio project. I'm like, I don't know what you're changing in your code. So is this going to be something I'm going to have to teach you? Like that you need to be thinking about not just like capturing what your intentions are, or what were you fixing? Why were you fixing it a little bit more clearly so that another team person, like someone else on the team could understand that. And then I'm also always encouraging them, like if you're using GitHub or something, and if you have like a list of features or ideas of things you want to work on next or improvements, present the pro like a, like a project. Like you can use GitHub as like a concept of like you can have issues, projects, you can organize and prioritize them. Like what's next? What's in the backlog? Do you have a sense of how to organize a project beyond what you've already done or whatever the next thought is in your you know in your head or something? Or even in just having a a to do list somewhere. Like here's the next things. Like finding a way to communicate that in your project, I think sometimes can definitely help it stand out. At least that's what I notice when I'm looking at people's portfolios. I'm thinking like, okay, cool. This is an interesting project. I'm not, may or may not be super interested in the output of what this project is, but how are they thinking about how they organize projects? Because how much is, how much of a barrier is it going to be to have them come in and be like, so the, a lot of the work is not writing software. Most of it's reading software. I don't know if that's, um, I was just speaking with a, another recent guest and they were citing a survey where, or, or not a survey, but a research project where they said around 60% of a developer's time is spent trying to understand existing code. 
I don't know if we talk about that enough in the industry either. Is that something you're able to kind of dig into in your curriculum? Uh, certainly not as much as we should. You know, the, the remarks you just made uh, made me think of the uh, Stack Overflow developer who <laughs> is constantly, you know, copying code. And, and what I tell my students is, okay, so you have a problem, you Google it, and you find this answer, you know, pull it out and play with it. Put it in a separate project, manipulate it, make sure you understand what you've just copied. Now, going back to what you're saying, there's a limited number of projects our students will do over the three years. Uh, typically, they're going to use the individual project that they do in their third year and then their group project and, and everything is up on Git. It's not public and that's because by using similar projects every year, we don't want next like <laughs> the next class to come through to read all the source code. So, but they certainly have access to it. And once they graduate, they're free to give, you know, we ask them, don't make it public, but if you want to, you know, make certain, you know, your employer, uh, you know, maintainer or developer something so they can see the code by all means. But no, we probably, well, probably, I know we don't spend enough time talking about, you know, what's the best way to do a, a commit message. They see them all the time, but I'm dealing with, when the students enter our program, they're usually 17 or 18. They graduate when they're 21 or 22. They're still excited about the world. <laughs> so things like commit messages just get in the way of the fun they want to have. Right, right. I, I, I get that. <laughs> you know, so, you know, I, I know that you'll be retiring from the classroom in a few months. And out of curiosity, you know, you kind of mentioned that you were a freelancer and, and then moved into um, into education uh, through approximately 30 years or so, give or take a go. For those listening who might be curious about the idea of becoming, say, an instructor at some point or, or even being a more of a mentor or volunteering some time in that sort of capacity, what guidance could you offer them on how to kind of explore that path? If, you know, if they have a number of years of experience and like maybe plugging away a code every day for this company I'm working for is not what I quite want to do, but I want to help other people learn how to do this skill trade well you know i i got into this you know i was i was doing freelance work i was developing you know software you know i look back on it and i can't believe that people actually paid me to do some of the things i did uh but i also had the opportunity to teach some evening courses right and these were i i think the first course i ever taught was how to use WordStar, and i remember having a classroom full of secretaries and they were all absolutely convinced that somewhere on the keyboard, there was a key that if you pressed it, would delete all the company data. Right? They didn't know which key it was, but they were pretty sure it was there. And they were terrified of these machines. Right? And so that's how I started. Right? I was, you know, I was the, the friendly ear. No, don't worry about it. Be relaxed. And then because I was programming during the day, I had the opportunity to start teaching some programming courses. And this went on for almost eight years. And then I got a phone call, come and join the day department. Somebody's leaving. You have the most seniority teaching, you know, one course a semester for seven or eight years. You build it up. And it was a, an interesting decision. But I, I love talking. I love, you know, speaking to a group, seeing their, their eyes light up when they go, oh, wait a minute. That's what I understand. And so when you talk about, you know, how do you decide if that's the route to go? I think that's it. You know, are you excited when you get a student, someone, whether they're younger, older than you, excited about what they're doing? 
And, and that's what I try and do. I remember running into a student who talked about, um, they had remembered I taught a course in Novell. So Novell networking. So now we're in, you know, 91, 92, when it was still around. And they told me how the most memorable thing from that course was the day I sang a number of commands to them. Now, I can't sing. <laughs> so yeah, it was probably pretty memorable. But that's just it. If you don't mind standing up and making a fool of yourself sometimes and, you know, recognizing that your students are struggling, right? It's like teaching them Latin, right? It may look like English, but it isn't. And you've just got to have that kind of patience. You've got to, I always believe, demonstrate a passion in what you do, that you have to go into a classroom and be excited about, you know, whatever silly topic, right? We're going to do a switch today. And they're all going, oh, and you're going, oh, wait a minute. It's really cool. You don't have to answer this question if you, if you don't want to, but I'd be curious what's prompting the, the path of deciding to it's time to part ways with this chapter of your career. Uh, well, first of all, I'll tell you that like all good programmers, uh, this is based on a program written years ago. So it's, it's related to my age. Uh, I have, uh, you know, an okay pension and stuff. It was just, this was the point. I'm going to be 67 in uh, May. This was the time when I decided, okay, I've, I've put in my 32 years in the classroom. I'm involved in other actions. I'm, I'm a Java champion. I sit on the Java Community Process Executive Committee. I've had the good fortune of speaking at other conferences. I organize a conference every year in Montreal called DOSCON, uh, which is, this was its fifth year. And then I also organized the second conference this year for Java Champions. So there are a lot of other things that I want to do, that I want to be involved in the community. I want to, hopefully, once I get all my vaccines, do some traveling. So that was the idea. I'm, I'm concerned that I'm becoming less relatable to 20-year-olds, you know, they, they they think I'm kind of cool for an old man, but I, th I thought it was time to, to look at other options. You know, some publishers have asked me to write a book. Can I? I don't know. The only thing I ever wrote was an instructional manual. That was 200 pages on Lotus 123 in the mid-80s. So that was the last book I wrote. So, you know, O'Reilly's reached out a few of the others. We'll see what I can do. I even have this weird idea. I want to do a children's book. And the topic of the children's book will be, what is a variable? Right? So I've, I've just got all these different ideas. I'm at a point in my life where I don't need to have that full-time teaching gig. Who knows? Maybe I'll make a few more bucks. I'm still obsessed with toys. Right? Uh, you know, I'm sitting here. I've got a special light. I've got a beautiful green screen behind me. Uh, you know, and I'm going, gee whiz, you know, I need foam on the walls. And I saw some really nice foam the other day. And and so whatever, you know, oh, my laptop's a few years old. I wonder what an i9 would cost me. Oh, I better get a gig to pay for that. <laughs> so that's that's where I am now, right? It was It's time to move on to contribute in a different way. And uh, that's what I'm hoping to do. So it's not to head off to the rocking chair. It's just it's time to transition a bit to a different uh, place in the industry. Hi there. Do you know someone who might be looking for assistance with their Ruby on Rails application? 
Planet Argon would love to meet them. We're offering a $1,000 referral bonus. Send someone our way, and if they sign up for services with Planet Argon, we'll give them a $1,000 discount. And in return, you'll get a check for $1,000 in the mail, just for knowing the right person. Hop on over to planetargon.com referrals for more information and to refer someone our way. That's planetargon.com referrals. Thanks. couple of quick last questions before we wrap up. And I did want to bring up one thing. So I, know, I know that you once wrote an article that described uh, the Beethoven tests for UI testing. And I'll look for a link for that to include in the show notes. But could you provide a high-level introduction for the audience to lead into that? So, you know, when I first started teaching programming, I think the, well, I, I think I, I taught Pascal for a while. Then there was C. Then there was C++. So we were all pre-GUI. And so one of the issues was whenever, you know, you had to uh, get information from a user, right? You had your basic command in C++, whether it was CN or whatever language you were using. And the question was, what happens if somebody misenters information? You know, how are you guarding against, especially in a, a console environment? So that's when I came up with the Beethoven test which simply means that when a student submits work, and it could be something simple like, please enter, well, if we use my uh, dice game, right? So you might have a question that says, uh, how much money are you gonna start playing the game with? And so when, that's, when I'm confronted with that, I will simply place my fingers over the keyboard, and then I hum Beethoven's fifth. Da-da-da-da. And just bang away at keys randomly and then hit enter. And if the program ends with a stack trace or whatever, however it ends in any of the other languages, they didn't get it right. So that's the Beethoven test. As I like to joke, imagine you've been out drinking the night before, you come into work, the keyboard is blurry, you might even pass out face first into the keyboard. Is the company going to go out of business because of that? How would you encourage people to write a unit test for something like that now? Well... Because it's user input, you know, we have to look at other tools. And this semester, for instance, although it's web-based, there are tools for desktop, uh, my students will be using Selenium to be able to fire a range of values at different fields on a web page to see if their code is responding properly. So do you encourage them to use their the things that they plug into, say, Selenium, their Selenium tests to be Beethoven-esque typing? Absolutely. You know, you have a field, you know, you're only allowed 20 characters, right? Push in 60 and then watch what happens. You know, where is it failing? The perfect example of, to me, an error is it fails at the database call when you're trying to put in too many characters, at which point I'm going, wait a minute, <laughs> that's a little late in the, <laughs> in the sequence to discover there was a problem. Um, I've been having a debate on, on Twitter about, you know, JavaScript versus JSF and where to do validation. And so one of the other issues I, I tell my students in terms of going back to this phrase, maintainable software is you may want to validate in your beautiful JavaScript, but you better be redoing every one of those validations back on the server because somebody's going to find a way to get around your pages. Yes. Sometimes JavaScript doesn't load very well, and then things weird things happen. 
weird things happen on a lot of different levels there. How, you know, out of curiosity, you know, do you feel like pre-pandemic had most of your time with students been in the classroom and has it been, been remote this last year? So it's been a year since I've been at the college. <laughs> I've been working remotely. I also do some evening courses for a university. Again, everything is remote. Um, I don't have a problem, right? I, I can be on whether I'm in a classroom or, you know, here I am staring at a, a camcorder three feet from my nose. But I do desperately miss physicalness, the, the ability to sit in my office, have a student come in, sit down next to me. Let's take a look at the problem you're having with your code. Yes, we can do that with Zoom or breakout rooms, but it, it's not the same. Or, or the most difficult thing is when a student is sharing their screen and I, I'm sitting there like, okay, scroll up, scroll up, scroll up. Oh, no, no, to the left. No, can you hit the file menu? No, the other file menu. Uh, no, it, it has been frustrating. And if anything, that's also driven me to, to say, no, I think we're, we're coming to the end of this uh, in terms of my being in the classroom. Yes, probably next September we'll be in the classroom, but... Uh, this this last year has kind of taken a little bit of the joy out of what I do. No, I can I can I can appreciate that. The especially because you were saying how much there was such a passion about being in the classroom and getting to see that, and it becomes a little bit. It's it's difficult even just running a company like on my end and just trying to like connect with employees like in a group setting. It's like the conventions usually like everybody has their mute on unless they're participating and talking. So there's not those little gasp or you can't really notice what everybody's my, my son works in QA and he just changed jobs last March he's actually never been to the offices of the company in Montreal or he may have dropped in once and he has a team and he's only ever seen them on zoom they have never physically met and and that's tough we're we're social animals and uh, you know I guess maybe when we all do this in VR or AR, it'll be a little better. But Maybe, maybe. <laughs> I'm so curious about that. It'll be interesting to see how that goes. So for those listening, if they wanted to continue to follow your thoughts on software development and kind of keeping up with what Ken's doing next in the world, uh, how can they find you online? Well, I'm on Twitter. I use the handle Omniprof. And that just comes from the company that I had before I went into teaching was called Omnibus. So I tend to put the word Omni in front of everything because it just sounds cool in my head. Nobody else thinks that way, but I do. So there's Omniprof on Twitter. Uh, Omnijava.com is my blog site. And, oh, this is terrible. I've even Googled myself. I do show up on the first page. <laughs> <laughs> Well, excellent. Well, with that, um, I want to thank you for spending some time to talk shop and for all of your contributions to the sounds like the Java community in particular over the last 20 plus years. I'm sure, I'm sure some of the people in the audience may know you or maybe one of your former students is out there listening right now. And so um, definitely reach out to Ken and seeing what he's up to next. Thank you so much, Ken. I hope you have a good rest of your afternoon. And thanks for joining us on Maintainable to Talk Shop. Thank you so much for having me. I've enjoyed it immensely. <laughs>